Endocarditis was first described more than a century ago, but its presentation and its epidemiology have changed in recent years. In regions with a high prevalence of homelessness and opioid use disorder, more than half of infective endocarditis cases may be directly related to injection drug use. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Michael Insa, a primary care physician and assistant professor of medicine at the University of Utah. Dr. Insa has written a perspective article about building multidisciplinary teams to care for people with infective endocarditis and opioid use disorder. Dr. Insa, what's been considered the traditional course of endocarditis and how in those cases is it treated? Well, traditionally, endocarditis has predominantly affected the left side of the heart and management is cheaply done in the hospital and in rehab facilities and consists of an extended course of antibiotics and, and sometimes surgical intervention. But most of those types of interventions happen either in the acute setting or in a rehab facility after hospitalization. So how have the epidemiology and presentation of endocarditis changed in recent years as the rate of opioid use disorder has increased? I think we're just coming to appreciate how much this is changing. I think traditionally, it's been thought that a minority of endocarditis is related to injection drug use, but new research is showing that in many cases, in places where there's a high prevalence of substance use disorders and homelessness, that it can be upwards of 60% of admissions for acute endocarditis are directly related to injection drug use, and in particular, opioid use disorder. So looking at the possible therapies, which patients with endocarditis are considered candidates for cardiothoracic surgery, and how is drug use factored into that sort of decision? I think that there are a number of like very well-documented criteria for who benefits from either emergent or urgent valve replacement surgery in folks with endocarditis, things like acute onset heart failure or persistent vegetation after a course of antibiotics or debilitating embolic phenomena like septic pulmonary emboli, et cetera. I think there's always been a little bit of a gray area in the guidelines and then also the approach of individual surgeons when it comes to people who are early on in remission from injection drug use and substance use disorders. So because it is open to the judgment of individual clinicians, and I think that sometimes stigma can really influence these decisions. And there are many cases in which people aren't getting guideline-directed care because of the concern of surgeons that they may um, go out and use injection drugs again and then develop a repeat infection. So in fact, Speaking of guidelines, you say in your perspective article that despite changes in the epidemiology of endocarditis, current treatment guidelines are still nearly exclusively focused on inpatient management. So what types of additional support do patients with endocarditis and opioid use disorder need, and how often do they have access to the kind of comprehensive care that that might be? Thank you for asking this question. And this is really kind of the crux of what inspired me to write the piece is that I think that the inpatient guidelines for endocarditis have really made Reached right. So over recent years, right, team-based care, multidisciplinary team-based care on the inpatient setting is becoming more common. Endocarditis teams have really improved outcomes for people with endocarditis in the hospital. And now increasingly these guidelines are recommending connection to addiction treatment on discharge, because we know that for folks who have opioid disorder and have endocarditis related to injection drug use, it, it drastically reduces mortality and improves outcomes. However, that's kind of where it ends. There's not really um, a lot on the outpatient setting to help guide an approach to treatment. just want to highlight a great study that was just done over at Massachusetts General Hospital that really used journey mapping to drive this point home. And they were following folks after an index admission for endocarditis related to injection drug use and then following their course after discharge and seeing what factors allowed them to avoid repeat hospitalizations, 
I mean, it was really ongoing addiction treatment and what they term sort of intensive outpatient care. So that it can look different for different folks, but usually that involves peer navigation, primary care, addiction treatment, various specialists that are going to help manage the complications of endocarditis and oftentimes intensive case management as well. So I think all of those factors are really important and there's increasing evidence to show that they can really be effective supports for people once they leave the hospital or subacute care facilities. But I think that there's not really much of a paradigm for implementing this right now in terms of either guidelines or even existing models. So what in fact are the barriers to instituting that kind of care and why do so many people fall through the cracks? I don't think that there are a tremendous number of barriers and certainly in in well-resourced health settings where you have access to things like care managers and and peer navigators and things like that. I think really it's more about coming to realize what a problem this is and then how to effectively set up these kind of care teams. So I think it's more that we're just realizing what these folks need and really also realizing the increasing prevalence of folks with this condition and with these ongoing care needs. So I think that, for example, having peer navigation and and intensive care management really helps people with the litany of follow-up appointments that they have to attend. I mean, oftentimes when people are discharged from the hospital or nursing facilities and they're back in an environment in which they're facing the same barriers to care that they had before their hospitalization and also triggers that are all around them in terms of increasing their risk for relapse and their substance use disorder. I think that additional support is really critical to help them and stay engaged with care and avoid uh, things like relapse into opiate use disorder. So finally, you mentioned stigma earlier, and you write in your article that stigma frequently leads to substandard care for people with substance use disorders. So besides building these multidisciplinary teams, what can health systems and individual clinicians do to reduce stigma related to injection drug use and to make sure that all patients feel welcome? I think this is a really critical issue, and I think that the effects of stigma on the care that people who use drugs receive is quite well documented, and and anecdotally, it affects every aspect of care for people who are admitted for endocarditis secondary to injection drug use. So, for example, people will oftentimes leave their either skilled nursing facility or the hospital before their treatment course is complete because they feel like either their pain is undertreated or they're facing stigma from their healthcare teams, and oftentimes not wanting to seek out care and addiction treatment because they feel stigmatized in traditional care environments. And I would say that stigma also affects things like we discussed earlier, like the decision of whether or not to do a valve replacement in somebody with a clear indication for one, like the patient we talked about in the perspective piece. I think that coming up with these multidisciplinary teams, especially with members of the outpatient care team for patients, is really critical in helping reduce stigma because I think that understanding substance use disorders in particular and opiate use disorder is a chronic illness that's treatable with medications and the social supports is really important for people who traditionally work on the inpatient setting. People who are the cardiothoracic surgeons and inpatient infectious disease specialists, et cetera, who only see these folks in sort of the acute setting to help understand that they have a treatable illness in their substance use disorder and that with the appropriate supports, they can manage that effectively and and still engage with the same kind of care plan that anyone else would. Um, And so really it's that team-based structure and communication between specialists and with care managers and with peer navigators and with the patient that I think over time is really going to help reframe the way that people, especially in the inpatient setting, think about substance use disorders and thereby reduce stigma. Thank you, Dr. Insa.